The following is a rebroadcast of Stratford University's Tech Talk. To hear Tech Talk live, tune in Saturday mornings at 9. You can find us on the radio on 1500 AM, 1045 FM, 1035 FM HD2, 1039 FM HD2, and 1077 FM HD2. Or you can listen live online at federalnewsnetwork.com. Interfacing complete. Please stand by. Now downloading Tech Talk Radio with Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Russ. Tech Talk Radio, it's technology you can understand. And now here are Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Russ. Welcome to Tech Talk Radio. We are in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. I'm Dr. Richard Schertz. And I'm Jim Russ. And a lot of stuff going on in technology. The uh, California net neutrality law has its first impact. Goodbye, free streaming. And we're going to talk about Proton Mail. It's more private than Gmail. Real? Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's an interesting thing, but you have to pay a little bit if you want to get unlimited storage. China is restricting Tesla vehicles, saying that they are afraid they're sharing the data with the U.S. Ooh. government. Mm. This is a retaliation against what we're doing with Huawei. And I'll try to get this week to the interplanetary file system. It's an interesting uh, interesting technology. I'll, I'm going to try to explain it. This week, we're going to feature Dr- Jeffrey Dummer. He is the guy who came up with the idea of the integrated circuit. He lives in England, and even though he had that idea two years before they did it in the U.S., the U.K. couldn't do anything because they don't have a tech ecosystem. Huh. So I'll talk about what is a tech ecosystem and why we have it. And, of course, it was a huge, huge mailbag. There's a letter in your mailbox. Yes, we got an email from Al in Calvert County. Hello, Doc and Jim. I'm a longtime listener from Calvert County and a fellow physicist. Viva, F equals MA. (laughs) Force is equal to mass times acceleration. It's one of Newton's very, very famous laws. Well, I'm uh, well aware of Google's pervasive harvesting of one's search interests and selling and profiling, selling information based on your data. Consequently, I'm using DuckDuckGo and IXQuick. IXQuick. That's also called SmartPage. Much more often now. My first question is whether Bing and Yahoo search are as bad as Google. It seems that Microsoft has many other ways to make money than just selling data. Any thoughts? My second question is whether Google harvests search data from searching within a website, uh, you know, via Chrome, Chrome uh, there'd be an internal search within a website. For example, if I open the Chrome browser and I search at an auto parts company, are they going to track exactly what auto parts I'm after? Thanks always for an informative show. Viva MC squared. E equals MC squared. That, of course, is the famous equation from um, relativity. Yes derived by Albert Einstein. Al from Calvert County. Well, or if you're nice from there, you call it Another physicist call, <laughs> right into us. Uh, well, if you're using Chrome, Google does track your browser history, and hence, all of your internal searches are going to be traced because they have it in your browser history. Now, many websites actually use 
the Google search engine as their internal search engine. In fact, I do that at the Stratford website. It's a great search tool, and um, and uh, Google makes it available as a, as a simple plugin for the website. So if in fact uh, you're using, they're, if they in fact they they're using the Google for the internal searches, Google's going to be tracking you there uh, quite well as well too. Now. If you don't want Google to track you down personally, you don't want to log into Chrome. They're always trying to ask you to log in with your Gmail account, so I wouldn't do that. But even if you don't do it, they're going to track your machine's identifier and identification number, and they will figure out who you are. They just you just make them work a little bit harder for it. Now the fact is, though, that Microsoft, Yahoo, Bing—they all want your business. They're all tracking your data. I mean, it is true that Microsoft has other ways to make money, but still, Bing's a separate entity, and they want to and they want to sell your data. So there, there, you've got just as much privacy invasion there. In fact, if you're using Microsoft, you've got Microsoft Windows. Microsoft that gathers even more data through the Windows platform. So they all, in fact, are invasive. Uh, Google's the worst because they've got a whole invasive ecosystem. They've got YouTube, Gmail, and Search, and a lot of other assets, and they link all that data together so they can really track who you are and what you're up to. Now, Microsoft bundles Bing Search together with Cortana and Windows 10, and that's a great ecosystem for Microsoft to collect their data. So, so basically, they are all after you. Now, I think you're on the right track using Start Page, which you're using. That's ixquick.com is the link to that Start Page. That does not collect, share, or save your information. Now, the nice thing with Start Page, you can visit pages anonymously, and they and uh, and they can't track who you are. They've got a very good feature in anonymous searching, and that you reach that by ixquick.com, and then of course DuckDuckGo. And that's at DuckDuckGo.com. They don't collect or share or save your information. Now, their search engine is very fast and very vast. I mean, it's a great search engine, and you have your privacy uh, preserved. Now, there's a new one that is out there. Yippee, yippee, yay. Have you ever used yippee, yippee, yay, Jim? I've never <laughs> even heard of it, Doc. <laughs> yeah, yippee.com, Y-I-P-P-Y.com. Now, it does not collect or share or save your information. Now, what it does, interestingly enough, you, you do a search there, and they go to all of the other search engines, and they do that search on your behalf, and then they co consolidate the data and bring it back to, to yippee.com. And so you get the, sort of the best of all the search engines consolidated in one place, and they actually provide that for you uh, anonymously. So they're using a Google search, but Google doesn't know who's doing it because they're a proxy search tool for you. So you can, if you want to try yippeeyippee.com or yippeeyippee, go to yippee.com. So you've got start page, which is ixquick.com. You've got duckduckgo, which is at duckduckgo.com. And you've got yippeeyippee, which is at yippee.com. All three of those are kind of nice. And you just find the one that you like and you're on your way to uh, privacy. We got an email from Richard in Rockville. Good morning, Dr. Schertz and Jim Russ. Thank you for high tech talk. My laptop battery light indicated a few weeks ago that my battery was getting old. Now, although the battery died a couple of weeks ago, my laptop's just worked just fine being plugged into the AC. 
I'd like to continue using the laptop in the AC mode. Can I continue to use it trouble-free in this mode, even though it houses a dead battery? I've saved whatever files are important, etc. Thanks. I listen every Saturday on WFED 1500. Richard in Rockwell. Well, Richard, the good news is you can continue to use your laptop without a battery. It'll just function like a desktop. Not a problem at all. However, what you're giving up is sort of the backup power supply that the battery provides. In the event you have a power outage, uh, you, you, you'd never lose a file with that with a battery installed. And you also lose the convenience to be able to un, you know, unplug your laptop and move to a different location or sit out on the deck and use it wherever you want. Now, you can keep doing that as long as you want. It's not going to hurt the, the laptop at all. Now, it, it, now, if I were you, I would replace the battery. They're, they're really cheap. There are a lot of uh, you, you, battery replacement batteries for laptops around 70 bucks. And there are uh, a lot of websites that specialize in laptop batteries. And, and I would compare that with the prices on Amazon. Amazon's not always the cheapest, but it's a good option. They've got great returns. So uh, you can keep doing what you're doing. If it were me, I would replace the battery because I just love being able to unplug it and move it. And, and if the power goes out, I know I'm never going to lose anything. And, the, and the, the batteries are cheap now. We got an email from Bob in Maryland. Dear Doc Jim and the elusive Mr. Big Voice, since Doc's internet seems to be intermittent at the beach house, making it tough for him to do research, I thought I'd just make a few suggestions to help Doc out of it. Here's one. Minor League Baseball reportedly is experimenting with robot umpires. Umpires. Robot umpires. I've heard this. Yeah, it's uh, the, all the best. Your faithful listener, Bob in Maryland. Well, Bob, that is a great use of technology. The, mid, uh, the Major League Baseball announced that it plans to expand the use of the automatic ball strike system. They call that the ABS. That previously had been, had been seen tested in the Atlantic League and the Arizona Fall League. Uh, in this expansion, they're going to they're going to go to more leagues in the minor leagues to see how it works. Now, the ABS is actually just a radar dish that scans and analyzes how pitches and swings are made. The product is typically installed above the home plate and communicates its assessment to the human umpire via an earpiece, who then makes the physical signal to the crowd. Now, rather than calling a ball or a a, a, a pitch, a ball, or a strike. The empire waits for the call from the audio, from the device, the ABS device, and uh, and then he calls it. And uh, and there's little difference in delay because there's even if he's calling it himself, there's a slight delay before he gives the signal. This is actually a great use of the technology because this strike area is sort of subjective, and you want to have an objective measurement of it. And I think both teams would favor this. Now, similar systems are being used in tennis because tennis, I mean, the ball's either inside the court or on the line or outside, and they can use cameras to track the ball trajectory and give a very accurate determination of whether it's in or out. And players love the automatic robotic uh, line judges because they... Uh, they're always looking, and they never, you know, swatting a mosquito and getting distracted. They, they don't get tired in the hot sun. 
They're not distracted by getting a drink of water. So they know they're always going to get a good call. So players prefer this rather than umpires because they believe sometimes umpires may favor one player over another. Uh Uh-huh. Now, we got an email from Peter in Fairfax. Dear Tech Talk, I just heard that Wikipedia is going to start charging people a monthly fee if they want to use it. I use it a lot, and it concerns me that they might want to start making me pay. I hope not. Are they planning to start charging us, Peter in Fairfax? Well, Peter, uh, the good news is you're not going to have to pay anything for Wikipedia. For just the regular uh, individual user, it's free. But they're... But large companies like Google, Apple, and Amazon, they use Wikipedia for all of their uh, uh, virtual assistants. Like if you ask Siri a question or Alexa a question or, or hey, Google, uh, basically the answer comes straight out of Wikipedia. So they've been riding on Wikipedia's back and making money for quite some time. So now Wikipedia is going to these guys that are using Wikipedia data to make money uh, Wikipedia is going to make them pay for access to the Wikipedia data. But for the uh, just regular user like you, it'll continue to be free. And uh, it's still, you know, it's still powered by uh, voluntary contributions. I I go in and make contributions to Wikipedia occasionally. I kind of enjoy doing that. I mean, you go into Wikipedia, you see something you you don't like, you just change it. And uh, Wikipedia lets you do it anonymously. But they make note that you haven't logged in, so uh, people may <clears throat> question that. But you can do it anonymously. I have an account uh, on uh, Wikipedia, and whenever I see something, I just make a change. And I'm telling you, these are very, uh, very, very active pages. If you put up th- something that's wrong, it gets changed, you know, within minutes. So Wikipedia is actually more accurate than many um, uh, teachers would like to admit. We got an email from Tracy in San Francisco. Dear Tech Talk, someone is sending me threatening emails, and I'm worried. I'm sure I know who it is. He mentions things in the email that only he knows about. I do not recognize the email address. Or anyway, to trace the IP address from the email headers and find out where the emails are coming from. I know where this person lives now, so it should be easy to prove that it is him or that it is he. Tracy in San Francisco. Well, you can easily find out the general location that corresponds to a public IP address, uh, with one exception. If the person is using a virtual private network, a VPN, and then uh, and sends an email with that VPN, uh, say if he logs into the web address of of say a, a, an online email service uh, and using a VPN, uh, it's going to it's going to give the I, you're going to see the IP address in the header of, that was assigned to him by the VPN, and that will have nothing to do with where he's located because it's that IP address is related to the VPN server and not to his IP address. So you wouldn't be get much help there. On the other hand, if he's not using a VPN, you can. You can look at all the header information on the email simply by going to, you know, you, you basically open up a tab and look at the properties of the email and it'll show you, it'll show you the, all the headers and the headers, there's a lot of headers on an email. You'd be surprised how much is, uh, is up there. And you can, in fact, find the IP address of the sender. And then you can go to IP Location Finder. You can just Google that, IP Location Finder. 
and uh, you paste in that IP address, and it will give you a location. It'll give you a city and a and a state. Now, that IP address, of course, is assigned to your internet service provider. So the location is related to the internet service provider. It's not the actual location of his house, but it will pin you down to the right city and right region, but not the specific location. So best of luck with that. But I would suggest if it's really a threatening email, you notify the authority, yeah. let them take care yep. of it. We got an email from Brad in Colorado Springs. Dear Tech Duck, I got a problem with my laptop. Ever since I updated it to Windows 10, the Wi-Fi automatically disconnects after 30 minutes, and I've got to reboot the computer to get it turned back on. How can I keep Wi-Fi working until I actually shut the laptop down? Brad in Colorado Springs. Well, Brad, the computer is turning off Wi-Fi as part of a power saver mode. You can prevent your laptop from automatically disconnecting from your Wi-Fi network with a few simple adjustments to power management. You want to right-click on the network icon that's located in the notifications area in the bottom right of the screen. Then open, then select Open Network and Internet Settings. Then click on Adapter. Then click on Change Adapter Options. Uh, then you should see a list of network connections. Right-click on your wireless connection. Right-click on the wireless connection that you see in that list. Then click on Properties of that wireless connection. Then you want to click on the Configure button. Then you select the Power Management tab, and then uncheck the box that will allow the computer to turn this device off, and then click OK to save it. After that, your Wi-Fi should uh, will not turn off automatically. So apparently, it was changing like that on its own. So you can uh, you you can find that. And if that was a little complicated, I'll be posting the the script uh, to the show on Monday. You can just go there and read the script, read the details right off the the web page tech at techtalk.stratford.edu. Listen, we love your emails. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu, and we'll get to you as soon as we can. This is Tech Talk Radio, heard every Saturday at 9 a.m. on uh, Federal News Network, 1500 a.m., 103.5 FM HD 2, 103.9 FM HD 2, southwest of D.C. on 107.7 FM HD 2, and in Loudoun County on 104.5 FM. You can learn more about the uh, programs at Stratford University and sign up to attend by going to stratford.edu. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And 
Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. And now it is time for... Profiles in IT. Yes, today we're going to feature Jeffrey William Arnold Dummer. That's what his mom called him whenever he was late for dinner, that's full name. So Jeffrey Dummer was an, Eng an English electronics uh, researcher who popularized the concepts that led to the development of the integrated circuit, or microchip. Jeffrey Dummer was born in Hall, Yorkshire, England, February 25th, 1909. He went to Sale High School. And then he went to the Manchester College of Technology to get a bachelor's degree. In 1931, he got his first job with the Mullard Radio Valve Company. Now, they had a problem. They would ship out, <laughs> they, they call them radio valves. Those were out tubes. That's, that's the old style of, uh, you know, tube the, radios. The tube radios, right. And so there's, then they, they were valves because they, would, they could regulate current through them. And so they called radio valves instead of radio tubes. And so... They had a problem. They'd ship out these tubes, and they might get damaged in shipment. And they were trying to look at the cause of failure of these tubes because they wanted to blame it on the shipping company. So that was his. It was that was his first job. He would look at all the tubes that were re returned to assess the the uh, the cause of the damage and the cause of the failure. Then he he did that job of uh, for four years, and he had enough of that. <laughs> and he moved to AC Cosser Limited, and he worked on cathode ray tubes. Those are, um, you know, and uh, and circuits. So, you know, cathode ray tubes. That's, uh, you know, that that was actually a precursor of the OTV tube. Really, right. those are all cathode ray tubes. Uh, and uh, and they would basically put an electron beam, and they put it on a phosphorus uh, a phosphorus film that was just on the inside of the of, of the of the front glass, and the phosphorus kind of glow as the electron beam would hit it, and, and you'd get an image. Uh, now, he was there for three years, and then he moved to Salford Electrical, where he worked in the high-frequency lab. So he was, he was getting more and more technical, and he was working actually on timing circuits there. Then in 1939, he joined the Ministry of Defense as a technical officer, and he worked uh, on time basis, where he was calculating time very accurately, for the telecommunications research establishment. Now, the reason they were interested in time bases and accurate measurement of time is this was just before World War II, and Britain was trying to develop radar because they were afraid of the German bombers coming over and attacking London, and they wanted to detect them with radar. So they had a crash program then on the development of radar across across the whole country. Now, his group made the first 
plan position indicator, PPI, ever built. And you've seen this kind of radar displays where the antenna's in the middle and there's a sweeping line that goes in a, that goes around in a circle. And then you get various concentric circles there that correspond to hits that they pick up. And so they developed the first PPI display for, uh, for radar systems, and they got a couple of patents for it. In 1942, Dummer started the Synthetic Trainer Design Group. It was responsible for the design, manufacture, and installation of radar training equipment. Because you see, they were putting in all this equipment, they had to train people, so he was making radar simulators to train the military personnel on how to use radar. This was the number one priority in Britain at the time. He then, in 1944, was made leader of the physical and tropical testing labs in the component group. Now, his interest in components grew out of his experience with radar. He needed a system that was reliable. Now, now these radar systems, they were out in the weather I mean, it rains a lot there in Britain, yep. and, and he wanted to develop something that could survive the high humidity of, uh, and the cold that they had in Britain, and so he was constantly looking for more reliable components. Now, he, with a, with a fellow scientist, developed the first plastic potted circuits. This is where you have a circuit board, and you just encase it in plastic to seal it, to seal it off from the weather. And they, uh, they released their first plastic potted circuit design in 1947 to protect the components from shock and moisture. Then, then he got the idea, why don't we use uh, methods where we print on wiring onto a board? So, and so he started making etched circuit boards where they'd have a, a thin layer of copper and then you would etch patterns in it and then you could get, and then you could stick your components on that board, on that circuit board, and all of the etched patterns would provide the interconnectivity between the components. I used to, when, in, a long time ago, when I'd make devices for the lab, we, we had circuit boards that we would etch. We'd design our own circuits, and we would etch our own circuit boards and put in components. They were, they were really simple circuits, but it was, a, it was a quick way to put together a circuit design that, that, that would not be damaged easily, that was robust. Now, then he said, you know, in 1952, he started to think about planar technology, and this was at, right after the uh, transistor had been invented at Bell Labs and in, uh, in silicon. And he got the epiphany idea, hey, we, in silicon, we could, we, could, we could embed transistors, we could embed resistors, we could embed capacitors, and we could make an entire circuit integrated on silicon and with oxide layers and pieces and, and layers of metal. So he went to a conference in uh, the U.S., the U.S. Electronic Component Symposium, and he was still trying to find more reliable ways to make circuits for radars. And, and this, is, this is a quote from that paper. With the advent of the transistor and the work on semiconductors generally, it now seems, and I'm quoting, possible to envision electronic equipment in a solid block with no connecting wires. The block may consist of layers of insulating, conducting, rectifying, and, ampl and amplifying materials. The electronic functions being connected directly by cutting out areas of various levels. This was 
the first public description of an integrated circuit. And that revolutionized all of electronics, really all of computing. Now, he went back to the lab. He didn't really own a lab to do this thing. And, and, he, and he had limited responsibility because he was, uh, uh, I mean, they, they were very uh, regimented there in their research there in Britain. What he did, he, he managed to, to wrangle a contract to the Plessy, which was a company, and he went and he worked with them. And, you know, I don't know, he gave the contract some oddball name so he could <laughs> get it through the system, you know, and he kind of, and he got it done. And so with Plessy, they developed actually the first integrated circuit in silicon. It was a flip-flop circuit. It had four transistors. Flip-flop means uh, you, it has two states, either this transistor is in the conduction mode or this or this other transistor is in the conduction mode and it flips back and forth. So it was a flip-flop circuit. It, it had four, uh, four transistors and some capacitors and resistors and it, and it flipped back and forth. And so he, he presented that at the, uh, at the conference. The resistors and capacitors were deposited in a thin film form and then he used uh, actually wires to connect them all together you know uh, he, he hadn't perfected the uh, the planar uh, connection method yet and uh, he didn't patent that and he was the first one to do it two years later jack kilby made a similar circuit at texas instruments and he patented it and that was, and Jack Kilby was credited then with actually inventing the, uh, the you know, the the um, microcomputer, not the microcomputer, but the micro, but the the uh, the integrated circuit. He so Jack Kilby got credit for inventing the integrated circuit two years after Jeffrey Dummer had actually presented it and had one made there at Plessy. So he he missed out on the whole deal. Now. And then shortly after Jack Kilby did it, then then you had uh, uh, Robert Noyce out in uh, out in um, California, and, and a bunch of his buddies at Fairchild. They actually spun out, left Fairchild, and started a company called Intel, and they invented the fully planar technology, which of course became the uh, microprocessor uh, out of Intel. And all of that was built on this basic idea of the integrated circuit. And uh, Jeffrey Dummer, even though he was a leader in the field globally, never could get off the ground because, because of the way technology is organized in the UK. Now, he began to campaign for the, for the United Kingdom to invest in integrated circuit, but he was met largely with apathy. So the ministry would not place a contract for an integrated circuit because they said, well, we don't have an application. And the application people said they don't want it because they have no experience with it and they don't and they don't want it to feel the system that they don't understand how it's going to work or if it will work. They didn't want a pig in a poke. So uh, so the research people wouldn't do it with an application and the application people wouldn't do it unless they knew that it would work. So it was the, the old chicken and the egg problem. As a result, nothing happened. <laughs> now, <laughs> what did America do? America took financial gambles. This Whereas they were very slow in the UK, America could jump right on it. Uh, uh, you know, the UK, the um, America had uh, a, a technology ecosystem that allowed us to capitalize on it, and our ecosystem in research was not controlled by the government. 
It was controlled by free enterprise. I'm going to talk about why what we have in America is so, so special. Now, now his knowledge and experience with the components under design and construction uh, made him a worldwide expert. Everybody knew that this guy was ahead of the power curve when it came to integrated circuits. He appeared on BBB television programs, extolling the virtues of integrated circuits. In 1964, he sponsored a symposium on the electronic, electronic beam techniques for microelectronics fabrication. He did that at the Royal Radar Establishment, RRE. He wrote many books on electronic equipment, inventions and discoveries, components and reliability, with several publishing houses. He was well-known in the field. He did everything except actually produce finished devices because he didn't have an ecosystem there in Britain. He, he retired uh, as a superintendent of applied physics in 1966, and then he became a consultant to companies all over the world. He was editor-in-chief of the uh, International Journal for Microelectronics and Reliability, a journal which he founded. So he had a very, uh, very great life, but his one regret was that Britain could not be a leader in microelectronics. And you never hear people saying, yeah, they're going to be microelectronic trips manufactured in Britain. They're not. They're manufactured in the U.S. or, or Taiwan. But... Uh, but not in Britain. He died September 2002 and is uh, buried at the Malvern Cemetery. So there you go. Everything you wanted to know about Jeffrey Dummer. Hope you're paying attention because you're going to get your chance to display your smarts coming up when we play the pop quiz here on Tech Talk Radio. Heard every Saturday at 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD 2, 1039 FM HD 2, southwest of D.C. on 1077 FM HD 2, and in Loudoun County on 104.5 FM. Altogether, we are Federal News Network. You can learn more about the programs at Stratford University by going to Stratford.com. You can also sign up to attend at that website. We'll be back in just a minute. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Live from Washington, it's the Stratford University Pop Quiz with 
Andrew Mitchell, Jim Ross, featuring Mr. Big Voice, with musical guest, the Stratford University Junkyard Band, and your host, Dr. Richard Schertz. Oh, yes, thank you, thank you, thank you. I just love this enthusiastic audience. They are uh, taking their time sitting down. Yes, we'll get them. Okay, now they're down. They're down. And we we just love uh, welcoming them back to the classroom of the airwaves. Yes. And we're going to see whether they've been listening and learning with a pop quiz. And if they get right the right answer to the pop quiz, they'll get tickets to fine dining at one of our dining rooms when they open up after the pandemic. And they'll also get an A-plus for today's show. Now, earlier in the show, I talked about Jeffrey Dummer. He's the man who popularized the concepts that led to the development of the integrated circuit. Uh, now, when he graduated from uh, college, he got his first job. He was there for three or four years. What was his first job after college? That's right. Here we go. To do today's question, well, now is your chance to show us just how smart you are. Pick up your phone. Give us a call. If you're dialing from west of the Rockies, 877-936-9333. East of Playa del Shirts, Virginia, it's 877-936-9333. If you're integrating your circuit in Canada, call us on the wildcard line. 877-936-9333. Anyone else, anywhere else may call us on the international line. It's sanitized hourly with pine salt, so it smells good. 877-936-39333. Now, once again, here's Dr. Richard Schertz. Yes, let's ha- talk about the bad idea of the week. Penalizing people for unsecured Wi-Fi what? access points. What? Can you believe that, Jim? Uh, the nanny Under, state. And only, and only in Germany. The nanny Under state's German law, not only are Wi-Fi operators, whether they be individuals or businesses, liable for the activity on their Wi-Fi node, but they're liable if they run the node open without a password. If anyone is discovered to be running their Wi-Fi network without a password, they are fined the equivalent of 126 U.S. dollars. Now, German citizens aren't really very happy about that. No. There's a big pushback over the thing, and there have been a lot of topics uh, at the uh, recent elections, and they are badgering the politicians to get rid of this ridiculous law. But it's still there, and it's still the bad idea of the week. Now, let's talk about the impact of California's new net neutrality law. You know, they passed that law, which said carriers cannot give preferential treatment to anyone, that everybody has to be treated equally. That's why it's net neutrality. Uh, the, the, uh, the, you know, this law went to court, uh, the, um, the, uh, and the, the government prevailed, so the net, uh, California government prevailed, so the net neutrality law is alive and well in California. Now, here's the first byproduct of that law. AT&T informed their nationwide cell phone customers that it was ending a program that allowed websites and services to buy their, around, buy their way around the AT&T data cap. So in particular, data-free TV, which enabled customers to stream video from selected services, 
including AT&T's own HBO Max, without using up their monthly uh, data allowances, all of the data-free services are gone. Now, not just for people in California, they're gone for everybody in the entire country. Now, under California law, it's not allowed. So this practice known as zero rating, where you where you give a website zero rating so it doesn't go against the uh, data cap is no longer allowed. Now, this is the, the so a lot of people are upset over this. Yeah, California has this net neutrality law, and then I lose my uh, my my uh, free data streaming of movies. Now, here's but there's another way to look at it, and it may in the end may not be bad. You see, what these uh, companies are doing, they're actually having very low data caps, and then it and then they force you to use services that have this uh, zero rating, where they don't put it against the data cap. And so people then tend to sign up for the services that they're pushing, either their own service or services that are paying AT&T uh, for this activity. Now, if you go to Europe, where they do not, where they actually have very strict net neutrality laws, and there is no zero cost streaming, everything goes against the data cap. In Europe, the data caps for about the same price per month are eight times higher than they are in the United States. So what the Ultimately, I think what this result is going to, what this legislation will do, it will force the cellular companies to raise the data caps to what they are, probably eight times higher than what they are now, and they just charge you for all the streaming. And that actually may be a better result. All right. Okay. We've got somebody who'd like to play the game. Let us go to line one. This is Thomas calling us from Bowie. Good morning, Thomas. How are you? Pretty good. Good. Doc, go ahead and ask the question, please. Earlier in the show, I talked about Jeffrey Dummer. He, of course, is the guy who came up with the idea of the integrated circuit, but but never could get it off the ground in the UK. What was his first job after college? His first job after college was uh, expecting uh, returned valves, as they called them, to determine why they failed and why they were returned. What kind of what kind of valves were they? Valves, electronic valves, electronic tubes. I guess that's close enough. That is, that is, he's got it. Radio yep. valves. There that you go, Thomas. Rectamundo. Thanks, thanks for listening today. Thanks for checking in, and we'll talk to you down the road here on Tech Talk Radio, which is heard on Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 103.5 FM HD2, 103.9 FM HD2, 107.7 FM HD2, and in Loudoun County on 104.5 FM. Go to stratford.edu to learn more about the programs and to sign up so you can attend Stratford University. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment.
In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Observations from the bunker. You think when it warmed up, the door would get a little less squeaky? Yeah, you? you'd think so. I'm hoping it is going to clean up a little bit once the, once the weather gets really warm this summer. I, I started thinking about tech ecosystems because Britain just has trouble getting technology out of the lab and into production because they don't have a sophisticated tech ecosystem like we have in the U.S. So I just thought I would sort of opine on that. I've been thinking about it this week. Now, ecosystems of craftsmen date back to antiquity. For instance, in the last 500 years, there was an ecosystem for Venetian glassmakers. You've heard of Murano glass. It's yep. like a, a little place you, know, you take the... You take a gondola out to Murano, and uh, and they and all these glassmakers. There was a glassmaking ecosystem out there. In in Switzerland, they had the Swiss watchmaker ecosystem, where they this was back in the 16th century. Even well, even Britain <clears throat> had an ecosystem for making steam engines back in the 18th century. Uh, back 500 years ago, in Western India, had an ecosystem for making fabric. And uh, they had weavers that would make these complicated patterns. And so there are ecosystems of craftsmen that date back. Now we're talking about, and then of course we have an ecosystem, a tech ecosystem in Silicon Valley that has been an engine, which is just turn it, churning out company after company after company. So what does it take for an ecosystem to operate and how does it really function? Well, you need a pool of talent first that extends beyond the entrepreneur and need talent that, that knows about product design, marketing, sales, you know, logistics, as well as the, 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 the pool of entrepreneurs. You need education. Uh, you need uh, universities that are going to produce, uh, uh, that are gonna produce uh, people that are like uh, thinking about new technologies, innovative technologies that are at cutting edge and uh, in the research department of those universities. Then you need uh, locations and events because ecosystems flourish when ideas are shared. It's like a collective effort where everybody's helping everyone else. Ideas are more readily shared in an ecosystem when startups and their staff are co-located. That's um, at Silicon Valley, at all the social events, everybody is sharing all their ideas and that's part of the strength 
of the Silicon Valley ecosystem. Then you need incubators and accelerators. Now, incubators and accelerators, they provide a centralized program that brings together talent in a single location, and then it provides the necessary education and mentorship for first-time entrepreneurs so they can accelerate their progress. And finally, you need local funding. Where, uh, where you know people get a great idea, because, but all new businesses start out at negative cash flow. So you need a source of local funds that are going to fund these new startups. And then you get, if all that is in place, you get what they call the virtuous cycle, where new entrepreneurs find training, help, and funding required to get them started. And after they've made a boatload of money, they in turn help their peers with the next and the next generation of entrepreneurs, and they fund them with the money that they made with their business, and the cycle continues. So we had a tech ecosystem in San Francisco. Um, I mean, it, it started with Hewlett Packard and Fairchild uh, Electronics, and then when the integrated circuit came out, which uses silicon, uh, some key players at Fairchild left Fairchild and they started Intel, and uh, and sort of the uh, the pool of technical talent at Fairchild and Hewlett Packard fueled the initial development of Silicon Valley, which is based on the Silicon microcircuit. That's why they call it Silicon Valley. Uh, and the universities there, of course, were an integral part of that innovation process. Stanford University and UC Berkeley, and they didn't have a similar ecosystem there in uh, Britain because it was more controlled by the government. And, uh, and there, there wasn't this entrepreneurial drive to really grow a business and make it go. So we are particularly lucky in the US to have the ecosystem that supports technology. Now, California's about, I mean, I have to say, unfortunately, they're kind of screwing up their ecosystem with all their high taxes and the way that they're just not managing San Francisco. And now there's a massive exodus from California to Texas. So they call it the, instead of the Brexit, it's Texit, where they're leaving for Texas. Mm -hmm. I mean, even, even Tesla's moving down there, and H HP moved down there. So uh, if, if California's not careful, they're going to mess up probably the best ecosystem in the world at Silicon Valley, so they better get their act together before everybody leaves and moves to Texas, where they have zero income tax. So now let's talk about... Uh, Proton Mail. It's more private than Gmail. Now, Proton Mail, and you go to protonmail.com, it's a secure e email provider. Now, Google profits by, it gives you free Gmail, but then they scan all your emails to see what you're interested in, and they, they deliver up ads to you, and they make their money on ad delivery. And of course, they're basing it on whatever you write in your emails. So, so it's really not that private. Now, now ProtonMail does not have any ads, and they don't scan your email, and they don't have any logon information. Uh, the data is stored on their server in a manner that makes it useless to third parties. Now, their free plan, their free tier is very limited. You only get 500 megabytes of storage, and if you want more storage, you have to pay for it because that's how they they don't make money by selling your data. They make money by selling their Gmail service. Now, many of the features that make Gmail you know, easy to use are not possible on Proton Mail because of, of, of their focus on privacy and security. For example, 
A proton mail will not crawl your email and add events to your calendar automatically based on an email because they don't even look at your email. Now, proton mail encrypts all the data on the servers, so they can't even read it. They, they cannot read any of your email. It's all encrypted. If there's a security breach, nobody can get anything be, unless they have your security key because all the data is encrypted. Now, Proton Mail makes it easy to send an encrypted message to someone else. They use PGP, pretty good privacy, which is a great encryption technique. And it locks the email so that only the recipient can read it and nobody else can. And that you can even send password-protective self-discovering messages to any user on any uh, web platform. So, and the final advantage of Proton Mail, it's in Switzerland. And Swiss are notoriously strict about privacy. In addition, Switzerland is not part of the Five Eyes Intelligence Sharing Agreement that exists between US, Canada, Australia, United Kingdom, and New Zealand. So you don't have intelligence officers trying to get into that thing. So it's a very good option if you want secure email. So the question I have is, are you going to abandon Gmail for ProtonMail, Doc, or are you going to stay with uh, Gmail? I'm going to stay with Gmail. I, 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 now, if I were doing some nuclear secret stuff, I, I, <laughs> I probably would go to, go to Proton, ProtonMail. But I just like the convenience of Gmail. Yeah, I'm, I'm with so you. So I'm, I'm you. willing to, to trade convenience for privacy, yeah. actually. Yep. More or less. So yeah. now I, I think, uh, let me look at the time here. Okay, we've yeah. got enough time. I'm going to talk about uh, the interplanetary uh, file system. Oh, boy. Okay. The interplanetary file system. Now, this is a protocol that was developed by the, uh, it was a protocol started by protocol labs, as you might expect. Mm. And they started this in February of 2015, and they wanted to create a new way to serve up information on the web. Now, currently, if you like, you post a document to the web, it has an IP address, and somebody wants to go to that document, they put in the IP address, and they'll go to that web page. And so everything is like location specific. And if you uh, have something stored on a particular IP address and people don't like it, they can block that IP address. People can't get to the data. So what the interplanetary file system does, it distributes the data all over the web. It breaks it up and distributes it all over the place. And when you want to access data from the interplanetary file system, it has routing algorithms. Uh, and it reassembles all of your data from all of these uh, various sources and sends it to you. And so, uh, and when they store the information at, on, in this distributed uh, storage network, they hash it. In other words, they encrypt it so people can't read it. And then when they bring it back together, they de-encrypt it so you can see the assembled document, but, but it's stored in a distributed storage network all around the world. And, um, and you save on bandwidth because you're collecting information from multiple nodes that may be closer to you rather than everything from one server. Now, you might ask, how do they get people to provide storage for the interplanetary file system? Well, they pay them in cryptocurrency. <laughs> so th this is a way to trick people to do work for you. So they created, uh, they created a cryptocurrency called Filecoin, they created it back in 2017, and if you provide storage services for the interplanetary file system, you are paid for your trouble in Filecoin, and they did an initial offering of Filecoin back in 2017, and they're still building the product and trying to build demand for file, 
for the Filecoin. Now, for instance, there was an independence movement in in uh, in Spain at Catalan 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 Catalan. Okay, it was uh, and. Uh, this independence referendum was deemed illegal by the Constitutional Court of Spain, and the Spanish government blocked all sites relating to this independence movement. Well, the Catalan Pirate Party simply moved all of their data to the interplanetary file system, and they bypassed the high corridor, and everybody could see it. There was another example. There was a block of all of Wikipedia in Turkey. So they, they took a mirror image of Wikipedia and they uploaded it to the international, interna, interplanetary file system. And then people in Turkey could actually view Wikipedia at, uh, with, with, uh, without any problem. Now, it, it, now, if you want to take a look at the website for the interplanetary file system, it's ipfs.io. And the thing is, the content for Wikipedia that they stored was fixed because they, they hashed it. And so it couldn't be changed. So it was it, they, they actually uh, froze the Wikipedia on the day that they uploaded to IP, the Internet Planetary File System, put it up there. So it's, a, it's just a very good way to get. And so why people are interested in this is we want to have less dependence on these big tech companies. Remember when Parler was put out of business because Amazon Web Services kicked them off of their yep. cloud? Yep. So... Um, uh, people don't like that. They don't like tech companies. I mean, you, you might not agree with Parler or their politics, but it's not up to tech companies to decide who's on the web and who isn't. Right. And so this takes away the power from the tech company. Good. And I, I think it's really a nice idea. I'd like to see the interplanetary file system succeed. But there's another idea that's really interesting, combining the interplanetary file system and Ethereum. This is a grand proposal. Now, let's see. Do I have time to explain? You got about 40 okay. seconds. I think we got a little bit of time here. So blockchains, Ethereum is a blockchain where you store information and people get cryptocurrency for validating the blockchain. And But they're terrible at storing large amounts of data. They can just store small amounts of data. And, um, and so whenever a piece of data gets to Ethereum, a new data block, the data becomes part of a new block, which is validated. Now, that means a thousand computers around the world are working together to come to a consensus. And that consensus is powerful because you can't add something to the blockchain without it being validated. Now, the trouble with IP, the International Interplanetary File System, is that it can store large amounts of data and encrypts them, but you, you don't have proof of when it went up there. There's no, there's no time stamp on the encryption. So, you combine Ethereum and International Planetary File System. You take the hash that has been created by the Interplanetary File System and you store it in Ethereum and that timestamps it. And that allows you to actually create a document which is ready to go. L listen, we love your emails. Email us at techtalkastraft.edu. We'll get back to you as soon as we can. Tech Talk Radio is sponsored by Stratford University. For more information on courses at Stratford University, call 1-800-444-0804. Thanks for listening to Tech Talk Radio Online. <laughs>